Last week as we began our Advent meditations and study, we noted that the coming of Jesus, far from being romantic and easy and sort of comforting, was really quite disruptive. And we saw the many passages in Matthew and Luke that spoke of the disruptions that Jesus' presence caused. Not only for King Herod, who now had a rival, and for Joseph, who now had an unexplained pregnancy, or Mary, who was about to experience something no woman other than she has ever experienced, but also all Jerusalem, the Magi, the angels are disturbed. I mean, everything is in upheaval. And not always in a pleasant way, for Joseph and Mary must get up on short notice and leave for Egypt. I mean, who was ready for that? This week, though, as I say in the outline on page uh, 8, is that uh, these Advent disruptions lead to Advent meditations. We will see how those who have been disturbed responded. And we will look in detail at three of those whose words we have so that we know what it was they were thinking as they wrote. Well, we do this under the rubric of this verse from 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15. But thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. May we bow together. Deliver us, O Lord, from the false expectations of this world that material and even family will fully satisfy our longings. For our deepest longings are to be found satisfied only in you. You are the only one who can give us a true home, and you have purchased it through your Son. You are the only one who can love us unconditionally, and you have done so time and time again. You are the only one who can be faithful to us and keep your word perfectly and fulfill all of your promises. And this you are doing and have done. So as we turn to your word this morning, we ask that you might fill our hearts with joy, that you might give us the kind of expectation that comes from having been disrupted and having been healed by your grace. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It might be helpful to illustrate what I'm trying to say this morning by referring to the common natural pearl. Natural pearl begins its life as a foreign, disruptive object, such as a parasite or a piece of shell that accidentally lodges itself in the oyster's soft inner body where it cannot be expelled. To ease this irritant, the oyster's body takes defensive action. The oyster begins to secrete a smooth, hard, crystalline substance upon around the irritant in order to protect itself from that irritant. This substance is called nacre. As long as the irritant remains within its body, the oyster will continue to secrete this nacre around it, layer upon layer. Over time, the irritant will be completely encased by the silky crystalline coatings, and then the result ultimately is a lovely and lustrous gem called a pearl. 
Many of you knew that. But most of us don't see the disruptions in our lives, in our lives, such as Jesus brings into them as the foundation of a great gem, a great product, a great outcome, and a great result. Human beings try to replicate the pearl, but nothing is as beautiful as God's process of enabling the oyster to overcome the irritant, the disruption, if you will, and produce something very, very beautiful. In the same way, as we see these last week and moving through this Advent preparation, God is making pearls of us. He is using the irritants and disruptions to do something beautiful. And we can see this beginning to happen as we look again more closely at the story. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, and we read in verse 20, Matthew 1.20, we read that the angel says to him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. This is the comforting word. But it comes after the beginning of verse 20. But after he had considered this. Now we must, again, not rush to the, to the manger. We must not rush to the angels of the, the shepherds. The news that Joseph received about Mary's pregnancy was stunning, jarring, disconcerting. How can this be, but what to do? Surely crowded out any other thoughts he had for quite some time. And the Bible says merely that he had considered this. We can well imagine, we can well imagine some of the gyrations of his thoughts. If we put ourselves just a little bit in his place, this was disruptive, but it led him to think it over, to meditate upon what to do. Chapter 2, verse 12. The wise men have come. They followed the star. (coughs) They've come to see where the baby is. And they've given him gold and frankincense and myrrh. And they've honored and worshipped him. But, having been warned in a dream, and having heard about the disruptions in Jerusalem, no doubt, not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. They changed their plans. Because of new information, they had to talk it over and make a new course. They considered, in other words. They meditated on what this news could mean. In this case, perhaps a more practical outcome than Joseph's. Verse 22 of chapter 2. This is Joseph again. Verse 21, he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. He has to think this over now. He's been gone. He's been taken to Egypt. We didn't even mention that yet. He's, he's gone, spent two years there. Now he's on his way home, and the news is not entirely clear. His way is not exactly completely open. He has to think about what this thing means and the opposition that he's facing. And surely by now the question 
or the settled opinion comes on him, this is a mess. It started with an unexpected pregnancy that's still inexplicable 2,000 years later. It, it, it continued with a move in the night to a strange land where I didn't know anybody or have any place to work or live. And now when I'm about ready to come home thinking I'm on the other side of these problems, I can't even be welcomed. I can't even be sure that where I am is a safe place. Joseph had a lot to think about. But he isn't the only one. Turn over with me to Luke chapter 1. And verse 29. In the sixth month, God had sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. He tells her that she's going to be with child. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you, he says. But Mary's response is, verse 29, she was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. She responded faithfully as we'll see. But step one was the disruption, the irritant. Step two, they're beginning to build the pearl. And the beginning of the building of the pearl is consideration of these things, thinking it over, meditating on him and these cataclysmic events. Now chapter 1, verse 66, it goes on. Verse 65, the neighbors were all filled with awe throughout the hill country. This is at the uh, birth of, or the coming of John the Baptist. And uh, they were, all the people of Judah were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, when is this child going to be? What then is this child going to be? Zechariah and Elizabeth are disrupted by their own special birth late in life, unexpected. And all their neighbors and friends from round about are disrupted by the news. His coming is not smooth and easy. Chapter 2, verse 17. When they had seen him, that is the shepherds, they spread the word concerning what had been told about them, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. So the news goes out, and the countryside is disturbed, not just Jerusalem. This is amazing news. This is good news, but it's amazing, and, and it requires some reflection. And then the classic instance of this, in verse 19, chapter 2. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. This is step two of building the Christmas gem. Meditation. Consideration. Not yet able to see the end or the purpose. Not yet able really yet to worship. The first stage is disruption and irritation and inconvenience. The second stage, it seems, in all of these instances is amazement and consideration of how these things could be turning them over in their mind, thinking about this news in the context of all they had been told about life, about the Old Testament predictions, about what they knew from their Eastern religions, in the case of the Magi, trying to come to terms with it. And we haven't even mentioned Herod. 
Herod was surely disturbed in his sleep and in his waking hours by the knowledge that he had a rival. And we haven't even mentioned the parents of the slaughtered innocent children who had to reconcile this awful event in their own lives, come to terms with it. Surely that didn't happen in a moment or a day or a week. The disruptions of Christ at his birth and at other times cause us to think, to consider, ultimately to treasure, but we don't get to treasuring right away. First, we're worried like Mary was. Mary gets to treasuring and appreciating, but she doesn't start there. She starts with a period of consideration. Sometimes that feels like a lack of faith. Sometimes we feel like we ought to be able to respond instantaneously and faithfully and positively to the disruptions that come. But we don't see that here. It's true that in the, on short notice, Joseph took Mary as his wife. Joseph got up and went to Egypt, and when that time was over with, he got up and came home. He, he's kind of like a New Testament Abraham. When he's told to do something, he does it right away, but surely not without thinking. And the plans that he laid to divorce her quietly are the evidence of a quiet contemplation that was anything but quiet. Meditation is a good thing. Considering what this can mean is not necessarily an unfaithful response. It's the, if I can say it, the natural response, the normal response of someone to the disruptions of life, even the disruptions that God brings. It takes a while to process it. It takes a while to have it be matured and come to fruition and come to some sort of conclusion And that's where we are. Now, we don't know the content of their thoughts. It would be great if we did. If they could have written just a a page or two about the cataclysmic disruptions and thoughts that all of this brought, the emotional feelings they had, the questions that they struggled with and wrestled with, and the sadness and brokenness that they experienced. We would love to hear from those parents who lost their two-year-old boys because of Jesus. We would want to hear of their weeping and of their sadness. And we would sympathize them with them in a way we don't sympathize with the Egyptian parents when Moses and the people were set free from, from Egypt. But we don't have that. What we do have are three responses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We have Mary, Zechariah, and Simeon. Haven't mentioned Simeon. He's, of course, the older man, faithfully serving in the Lord, and, and had been promised that he wouldn't die until he saw the Lord's anointed, and he got to see him. It happened all very quickly. Wasn't much time to think about it. He just showed up one day in the temple when Simeon was going about his regular work. And yet we have some of his thoughts, too. Let's look at those. And I'm going to disrupt you a little bit and ask you to participate in this part of the sermon. 
first of all, we look and we see across, uh, most of these are in all three, but some of them only in two. The first response is that they began with praise and rejoicing. Look at Luke 1. Mary is told, and her first response is, verse 46, My soul praises the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Secondly, verse 68, Zechariah, having been filled with the Holy Spirit and told that he's going to be late in life, the father of John the Baptist, who would prepare the way of the Lord, says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. They led with praise. I'd like us to take a moment now and praise the Lord in our own hearts. And some of you who might like to stand and say a brief word of praise, let's begin our response to this news with Mary and Zechariah and Simeon by praising him together. Let's bow. Let us begin, O Lord, with praises for all that you have done for us. And may this teach us, as the disruptions of life come to us, that our first response is worship. Our first response is rejoicing and thanksgiving. No matter how unwelcome the news or how mysterious the outcome, may we always respond to you with praise. And now may you hear the words of your people here gathered this morning who praise you themselves in their hearts and with their voices. Receive our praise, O Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. So the first response of meditation is praise and rejoicing. It seems, though, that they move on to a second subject, and that is a reflection upon what this means in the context of God's grace and mercy. You'll notice also in chapter 1 and in verse 50. His mercy, says Mary, extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants. Verse 72, from Simeon, that is to say, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us, salvation from our enemies, as we saw last week. Verse 72, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant forever. And now verse 78, to give his people, verse 77, the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God. 
by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. So after praise, they reflected on God's grace and how this giving, the giving of this child was a mercy. As we encounter disruptions and difficulties, our first response is praise, and our second is to notice the mercy of it. Though it is understood and not always understood and mysterious, though the outcome is somewhat in question, his mercy shines through. The fact that he's even interested in me, the fact that he's even working in my life, is a tremendous blessing. And I see it as a, in the context of his kindness and his grace and his condescension to me in drawing me to himself and making me a part of that mercy. One of our Christmas carols that best expresses this is number 203. If you'll take your red hymnals, we're going to remain seated and sing of his mercy. Number 203. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Ah, yes. And then they move on to take comfort in his promises that have been kept. Again, verse 54 of chapter 1. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants, even as he said to our fathers. This third step is to put not the context of the disruption within the greater context of his promises to us, his kindness and his faithfulness. We don't know the outcome, and we don't know why, but we do know that he has a plan, that he has kept his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob down to us. 
And therefore, there's comfort in those promises while there is discomfort in the occasion. And it draws us near to him. Fourthly, they noted how he has now brought forth justice. This is a theme not often mentioned or highlighted in Christmas sermons, but it's clearly there. He has filled the hungry with good things, verse 53 says Mary, but he has sent the rich away empty. Verse 51, he has performed his mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Verse 7, D1, salvation from our enemies and from all those who hate us in their hand. This is the coming of the kingdom of God. This is a wonderful future that awaits us all when everything will be right and righteousness and shalom and peace. But it's not here yet. But we know he's coming. Where's the fairness in the loss of those children? Where's the fairness in the flight to Egypt? It will be rectified. It will be made right one day. We may feel it isn't fair, and we may cry out to God and say, these disruptions are just not right. But he'll make all things right one day. And the evidence of that is the coming of this baby, the coming of the Christ child. They rejoiced also in the light that he was. He gave them, he gave them a clear vision of what they should see. He speaks of, uh, uh, Zechariah says, because of the tender mercy of our God, verse 79, to shine on those living in darkness. In verse 32 of chapter 2, he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles, says Simeon, and for glory to your people Israel. People walking in darkness have seen a great light. And finally, they long for this peace that he would bring. On the other side of the disruption, as the pearl comes to completion and beauty, peace results. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And so it is that when we reflect on the disruptions we experience and the coming of Christ and the disruptions that he brought, our first response in building this pearl is meditation. The Bible says this is a pearl of great price. Jesus spoke of the kingdom that way, and he, and he, and he said, he spoke of it as being something that someone would seek for, would look for, would give a Great, it would, would be of great value. In fact, there was a merchant who was looking for fine pearls, and when he found one, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. He didn't just sell everything he had on a Tuesday afternoon. He thought about it. He was looking for something of great value. He knew what he was looking for. He was a merchant. He found it and he bought it. But that implies consideration and thought, preparation, reflection. So I conclude with these words found on page 9. The gospel is a masterpiece, and Jesus is a wonder. 
He is worth all that we have and all that we are. And we respond with great joy. If we could live in holy amazement of the totality of what he did for us, if we were able to adore with laughter and tears and grateful joy all that he's done for us, if we could live a whole new, with a whole new consciousness of it, over time we would be transformed and our problems would diminish, the loneliness would shrink, the self-pity would subside, the anxiety and the restlessness would be dissipated by his glory. It takes a while to build a pearl. That's why they're so rare and beautiful. Let the time be well put to use by thinking about these four bullets. Because he is worth all of this to me, I can obey him. Anything is worth this pearl. That means I can lay aside my agenda. I mean, the merchant is looking for great pearls, and when he finds it, he liquidates. He gets rid of everything, and he takes that pearl. It's his. He takes it to himself, and he owns it, and he cherishes it. If he is worth this much to me, then I can obey him. I can liquidate all my excuses and all my false pretenses. For anything is worth his pearl. And secondly, because of the value of this gift, I must be loved in spite of myself. And I must have value. Indeed. If I am this much cared for, and the complications of the beginnings of the Christmas story, and even in the incidences of disruption in my life, I can, be trust, I can trust that I am loved in spite of myself. Thirdly, because of the beauty of this gift, I am enabled to endure great loss and great pain. Yes, indeed. It changes what I think about life and death. It changes what I think about my priorities and his. And finally, because of the fullness of his love, the tenderness of his mercy, as Zechariah says, I can trust him. He's up to something good. Now, none of these people, by definition, would have initially thought that he was up to something good. We don't get there at first. We get there on the other side. We get there when we come to worship, which we'll look at next week. But now we come to the table. An indictment against us, a statement of our great need and of our great sin. And he says, I'm going to disrupt your life with the truth. If you will bend yourself, submit to me, and if you will think on these things, you'll be blessed. You will grow into a very great pearl. We truly conclude now by these words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, speaking of our being drawn into the Christmas story. If God chooses Mary as his instrument, if God himself wants to come in this world in the manger at Bethlehem, that is no idyllic family affair, no romance but the beginning of a complete turnaround, a reordering of everything on this earth. If we wish to take part in this Advent and Christmas event, then we cannot simply be bystanders or onlookers, as if we were at the theater enjoying all the cheerful images. No, we ourselves are swept up into the action there, into this conversion of all things. We have to play our part 
two on this stage. For the spectator, that's us, is already an actor. We cannot withdraw. We are drawn into the Christmas story. Bonhoeffer's right. It's not just a cute tale that we've heard since we were children. It's, by, it's, it's about a God who's alive and who invites us now to his table. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we thank you that you are opening our eyes to the marvelous beauty of your grace. Help us to reflect on these things that you are doing in our lives. Like Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and Simeon. Yes, and Herod and the parents of the innocents and the others. Help us to reflect on these things. And may you make of our meditation the beginnings of a beautiful pearl. Surrounding the disruptive events. And helping us to emerge stronger and transformed by his grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.